We've scaled from 16 apartments year one to 125 this year. 35 year history of planning refusals. Back into planning and get consent to use the entire building. 50 acres for about 120 million. What we're doing is we're putting two different offers in, subject to planning, we're putting an unconditional offer, which is obviously a lot less. Once you've bought a site, you can't unbuy it. So buying it at the right price is very, very important. Because you just got to know about planning and design inside out. And when I visited the actual garages, not only did I get on very well with her, but she lowered the price. Sorry, that is something we've, we've never heard. I'm probably yeah. never here on a podcast again. Welcome to the Real Developer Podcast. Real conversations about all things land, planning and development. In episode three of series two, we spoke with rapidly growing Home Counties Land Agency, Walter Cooper, led by Simon Cox, about taking landowners on your journey, his wildcard predictions for land in 2023, and why the housing crisis is really a planning crisis. We also hear about Simon's link up with the rugby world and trading with big house builders. Joining me as our guest co-host for this episode, a long-established real developer and award-winning women's business leader, Siobhan Cook of Archco Developments. Siobhan and Archco have now delivered seven new build schemes since their launch, as well as a host of commercial space and are currently advancing their own planning gain and build-to-hold strategy for 2023 in Essex, Kent and Greater London. This is another strong episode, having an honest and real conversation with some great experienced land agents and land buyers, especially with Simon's own experience in podcasting to Walter Cooper, which I'm very excited to share with you. We'll start this episode in one minute after a quick success story from Land Insight user and real developer Joshua Prince from Eastwood Developments. Yeah, we've used Land Insight now since 2016 and have identified thousands of potential acquisition opportunities. But one of the largest successes we've had was on a seven and a half acre industrial estate that we identified through Land Insights. We were able to get in contact with the owner and agree terms, but we quickly realized that we had issues in regards to the multiple accesses the site had and that they were all privately owned. Make sure you stick with us to the end of the episode to find out how Joshua got on after Eastwood found their target site with Land Insight. And on that note, Let's get on with the show. Siobhan, Simon, thank you very much for joining us today on the Real Developer Podcast. We are back, episode three. And Simon, this feels quite a special moment, given the fact that I spent a good year listening to you on podcasts, on your own podcast, Let's Talk Land, and now we get to put you into our hot seat as well. How does it feel? That's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah? Yeah. Good. Well, we take away a little bit of control, but obviously, you know, we have given you a little bit of a heads up on some of the things we'll be talking about. Just to throw in a quick curveball, we were obviously kicking off with a fair few international rugby matches over the weekend. We know Walter Cooper as an agency is big supporters of the rugby space. How was that for you? It wasn't the result we were looking for, but it's always a nice time of year. Six Nations really uh, gives you a nice sort of kick into spring. And yeah, I look forward to watching the rest of the games. I know Walter Cooper ended up on the back of the Barbarians rugby shorts as well. Are we going to see any more uh, guest appearances in the Walter Cooper brand in the internationals? There's some stuff in the pipeline, yes. Good. Nice to hear. Well, we've got the lovely Siobhan Cook with us today as well, who's going to be helping out with a few questions as one of the real developers now going into her fourth year under Archco Development. So we're going to dig into some of the trends of the land space. Simon, one of the key things that I want to ask you, because I know you did a predictions podcast at the end of last year, and I'm not going to squeeze you on those just now, but I do want to try and get a bit of a sense from the conversations you are having with your developer clients, with your house builders at the end of last year, how did the year end up and what was the kind of vision, the views, the, the theories for this year for most majority of your clients? 
yeah, it was a tough year, a uh, tough end to the year. Certainly the, the mini budget. And I was actually reading Liz Truss's piece in the Telegraph over the weekend about her thoughts about what she thought went wrong and what went right. However, ultimately, that threw a real span in the works for a lot of people. Uh, the interest rates jumping up, it was a lot of uncertainty. So the end of the year was, was very quiet. It's the first time in my career I've ever been offered to go to lunch with solicitors, <laughs> which tells you everything you need to know because they clearly weren't busy. We, like, they know normally most years trying to get deals over line. So yeah, last year was very quiet, very much a watching brief to the year ahead. And I think there's a general consensus that if sales rates would hold, which we are starting to see that they are, 0.6, 0.7, somewhere around that in the HBF figures and most of the house bears I'm talking to, that then perhaps they would look to buy more land in the middle of this year once they could really get a hold on what the appetite was like in the market. So realistically, we're going to see, I think, a slow start to the year. Lots of opportunities out there where people are trying to find a home for them. But realistically, it's going to be later in the year we'll see the real activity for the 2023. Do you think that a lot of the opportunities we will see will be the ones that in many cases have been around beforehand and they're coming back with price adjustments? Or do you think it'll be new stock? I think it'll be new stock. A lot of things people are seeing again. However, a lot of those realistically they were agreed at a level that was unsustainable. There won't be as much distress selling as I think people think okay. because there's a lot of liquidity in the market that wasn't there in previous times. So... We need to keep an eye really on the quality of opportunities coming forward. And I know from talking to a lot of my peers in the market, there's a lot of good opportunities just being held back for a bit whilst the market picks up. But I do think that Q2, Q3, we'll see some real high quality kit come to market. Interesting. Well, I like the sound of that. But um, yeah, let's hope it sort of comes true. So I am going to start off with a question I wasn't going to ask you, but I am now going to ask you it. So I wasn't yes. going to ask you for the reason that I was going to ask you, do you think that there's going to be much going on in regards to planning reform? And I wasn't going to ask you because my opinion is that there isn't anything going to be anything really going on because it's a little bit of a hot potato at the best of times. But you kind of teased me with a nibble of a conspiracy theory. So now my non-question is going to be a question to you. Do you think there is going to be much going on in planning reform? Yes, I do. And actually, they announced, I think, over the weekend or today, they're holding an inquiry into the levelling up bill and the planning reform. So that's interesting in itself that the party and the MPs feel like perhaps Go's gone too far. Anyone who listens to my podcast will know that I'm not a big Go fan um, and nothing against him personally. Don't know the guy, but there's a lot of decisions being made without consultation with the house being industry and also without any prior experience. So if we look at Go's track record in his other departments within government, he's been quite keen to make a name for himself. And he does that by announcing quite significant changes, but doesn't actually go on to see them through. He just kind of shakes the feathers a little bit and people get upset and then he moves on or he kind of wars it down but says wasn't my ambition someone else got involved if you see what he's done with the cladding bill you know he came up very strongly the hbf and the house builder market kind of acquiesced to his request and said okay go ahead we'll sign up and that's now being watered down because realistically it's an open-ended liability to a house builder and you can't have that in your balance sheet so that's now being changed. We're hearing that actually he's listened to the house bill industry and looking to target more SMEs that put these high-rise blocks up as opposed to the house bills, which historically typically didn't. So I, I feel like perhaps he's putting a lot of emphasis into vote-winning sound bites, but the more that goes through the, the legislative process, he will start to water those down. So I do actually think, and actually change them in another more positive fashion, but he needs to be seen in the media to be supporting the nimbyism but actually of, of the Conservative Party traditionally in the you know, Amersham and election type 
voters. But actually, I think that as we get further through the guts of Westminster, that will become more developer focused because actually that's who is their biggest donors. Mm. Yeah, understood. The thing is, even I suppose, if, even if there are changes, it's how long it takes to get through the system. So I suppose we're still looking at a long, a fairly long time before there will actually be any significant changes that will immediately affect us. So that being said, kind of leads me on to my second question is that how difficult it is currently to get anything through planning. How do you manage your vendor expectations for timeframes? You know, they want to put through planning, they want to deal with a developer, we know that planning is going to take a really long time. And I suppose it's like anything until you're on an NHS wait list, you don't know how long you've got to wait until you're on it. So how do you prepare them for that when trying to put the deals together? I think it's important to note that we are in a very serious situation as an industry. As a built environment industry, the planning system is broken and it's beyond repair. That The housing crisis that the media pick up on is a planning crisis. We hear regularly they cannot find the staff to actually staff the planning department. And let's be honest, is it a job anyone else would want? It's a thankless task. It's underpaid, overworked. You're often berated by the clients you come into contact with. So... And then, you know, after all that professionalism and degrees and high level of knowledge, you go to committee to be told you're wrong, basically, by people who haven't any level of experience. So not a job many people want, which leads us to a broken planning system. And I, and I truly believe that. I truly believe that absolute wholesale reform in the way we do things needs to be considered. The skeletons of it work, you know, but the actual functioning of it and how it's, how it's governed and how it's funded need to be treated the same as any other public services. That being said, when we are agreeing deals with landowners and developers alike, I mean, 13 weeks is almost, it's almost an insult to, <laughs> to people to suggest that that's when you get a decision by. So we often say that nowadays the subject to planning is more like an option. It's more like a three-year option. You know, we've had deals that take that length of time to get planning, particularly if they get refused and go to appeal. So, so generally you're kind of managing expectations by trying to add an additional six months onto what was already an additional six months. So you'd normally say a year for planning as a kind of yardstick, but but now it's 18 months with a possibility of a further 18 months to go to appeal. So you really need to identify what the key driver is for the seller to understand whether that fits their timescales and then try and adapt the deal to meet their drivers. So if the driver is cash, you need to consider an unconditional deal. If it's cash, then we need to consider a subject to planning deal. Or if it's a hybrid of the two, we can look at maybe a bespoke contract. But realistically, nowadays, there's no such thing as a quick land deal. Can I ask a question, Simon? One of the things that I'm always trying to sort of draw out for this podcast is the kind of real practical pieces alongside the bigger debates, which we need to have because we have got a broken planning system and it's, it's constantly on the agenda of every developer conversation we have. What, what do you think is the practical suggestion for those that are having conversations with a landowner who says, like we typically hear, my friend down the pub says, planning, you can get planning in six months. What can people do to try and present the realistic view to a landowner, or what do you guys do to present realistic time frame to a landowner who maybe doesn't isn't quite aware of the broken planning system? It's all about evidence. So you need to create an evidence base. So you need to give real life examples of of sites that they've previously developed have taken that length of time, and also not just that, but the cost associated with the holding costs of that site for that amount of time. Additional reports. You know, you need to be really brutally honest with landowners. So I'm not trying to pull the wool over eyes. You, you need to understand that. Most landowners feel like when a developer approaches them, there was some way that they are being turned over. Mm. So if you can open that up and say, look, here are my numbers. I'm not trying to hide anything from you. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a, obviously a profit element to this, which I'm going to be quite open with you about, but I only achieve that if I spend all of this money at risk 
over that length of time. And the current trend on the very top of government is one that says we're not really pro-development. So I'm taking even more risk. So if my profit is slightly larger, well, my risk is slightly larger. It's, it's equitable in this transaction. So I think realistically, if you can take the last few deals you've done with you, even a one-page summary of, you know, bought this site, you can check down registry in June 2015, achieved planning in April 2018. You know, by the time we'd met all the criteria and by the time that, you know, we'd had lockdowns and Brexit and nutrient problems and, you know, SADC problems around protection of the, of the woodland and, 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 you know, it, it goes on. So definitely take a portfolio of evidence with you. But not just that, I think there needs to be more openness between developers. So developers need to spend not so much time looking intricately to their own business, but outwardly to their competitors to say, we have a major issue, a broken planning system here. We need to come together under one banner to say, this isn't a viable option to just continue the status quo. And a lot of what I get told is, yeah, but the gray areas allow us to kind of, you know, make the planning gain. And Mm. if it was easy, everyone would do it. Mm. I get that, but I actually really care about the end product and what we're creating and what we're delivering and, and, and places that people will call a home one day. That's the person who's losing out on all this. So I think, you know, you do have organizations like the House Builder Federation and, you know, the LPDF and others, but I think it needs to be more one singular voice to say enough is enough. And actually, this is becoming so unsustainable for us that we have to look at alternative industries. And if we lose the SMEs out of the House Builder market, we'll lose A, a massive portion of developers that deliver high quality bespoke housing, the beautiful houses that Gove talks about, but also we'll lose... The creativity, the diversity of design and thought, apart from what needs to be on a large mass scale for house builders, a house types. You can't create houses on the scale they do unless you can economize the process. So we will lose some really, really nice architectural, interesting houses from the market. So it's important that SMEs do come together, work collaboratively, give real life examples to vendors, but also lobbying government for that. Really good answer. I like a challenge as well. So that might be one for real developers to take on. So thank you for that. You kind of brought me back around to the second question, actually, because now we've overcome timeframes, if we have, with, with our, our vendor. The next thing is obviously values, because I personally, we do build out decent schemes and we do build out luxury homes and we do build out what we would do, deem as sort of really nice, sustainable, functional, high-end homes. And obviously they're not cheap to build. They're less cheap to build than they have ever been. So how do, we, how do you manage what their interpretation of build costs are against what their interpretation of GDV is? Because I can guarantee you 90% of the time when I get sent a site, the GDV is too high and the idea of the build costs, I've just done inverted brackets for the people that can't see me, obviously, are also not in line. So how do you manage that with the vendors as well? Yes, it's a great question, one that a lot of people often ask. And I think there's a, a number of answers to that. The first thing is to understand the vendor doesn't really care. Not my problem. Bill costs your problem, sales is your problem. My problem is the value of the land. And that, that's what I care about. So that being the case, you need to take them on that journey so they can understand something that they don't really care about and why should they care. But actually, when you can break that down and say, this is why you should care, because bill cost has gone up. We are now starting to see a reduction in the cost of labor and workforce because a lot of contractors are realizing their pipeline isn't as long as they thought it was because projects haven't come forward because of increased build cost, but materials are still quite high. And that's because the stuff on the shelf, so to speak, was bought at the higher values last year. So for merchants to pass that on, they need to get rid of that stock to buy new stock at lower values to be able to sell it at lower values. It's supply and demand. It's just a normal economic market. So someone somewhere has to take some pain in buying that stock at the high levels it's already been put on the shelf at. That's either the supplier 
cutting the prices and making a loss, the developer buying them and passing on to the end user, or alternatively, just trying to wash it within the cheaper stuff and, and, and middle it out somewhere. That again needs to be shown to a vendor to say, I finished the scheme, this is my build cost, all in. You can believe me or not, but I'm trying to be as transparent as possible. That's what we build for. Well, your competitors come see me and they think they can build cheaper. Possibly they can, but we provide these sorts of taps. These, you know, take them through a built, finished, you know, the best thing you can do as a developer is take a landowner to a previously built scheme so they can see quality. Because ultimately, whilst they do care about the pound notes, that's what's driving them, there's a legacy issue here as well. Because they'll always drive past that and say, that used to be my land, my house. And they can be, bring them on that journey with you. We want to be proud of what was left behind. Because they will feel like, whilst they did nothing to develop that piece of land other than sell it, they will feel like they were part of that. So if there's a high quality product left behind, that's a good advantage from you to someone who invariably if they're cheaper is because the quality isn't as good. That's an important factor. And when it comes to sales, you're always going to lose that battle because any seller is going to think it's worth more than any buyer will. So you realistically, you can add in overages, you can add in drawbacks, you can add in various mechanisms in the contract to try and capture any uplift. But ultimately, you just have to sometimes look at the site in isolation and work out whether or not you think it's an area that will survive any dips in the market or not. So the real kind of high quality, prime, grade A locations, they're the ones where you might take a view on sales. If you're uncomfortable in taking a view on sales, it's probably because the location isn't strong enough, in which case you might want to think about passing an opportunity if it doesn't meet the minimum threshold for what you find to be an acceptable risk. Hi, it's Alex from Real Developer. Just jumping in quickly for one minute to let you hear the rest of the success story from the start of the episode from Joshua Prince, Eastwood Developments. So using Land Insight, we were able to identify who owned the various access points to the site. One was a private road that was owned by two individual freeholders jointly, one of whom had passed away. So it was had its complexities. But eventually, using Land Insights and working our way through Google, we managed to get hold of the right people to agree uh, access over the road. And on the other side of the site was, was also a privately owned road that was owned by a corporate entity that was no longer operating. But we managed to get in touch with one of the beneficiaries of that business who had since moved over to another entity and we managed to work with them as well. So overall, the access issues were resolved and we were able to promote the site and then later sell it on to an institutional buyer. To start your own land success story with Landtech, head to land.tech today. And now back to the episode. Simon, the reason Real Developer likes agencies like Walter Cooper is because you know what you're doing, you know what you're talking about, and you have a, a sincere way of doing what you're doing. We all know there are people with less experience in the space, and that's fine. This is part of the beauty of this industry. It's part of the, the magic of who we, all the wonderful characters we get in it. But we also get these interesting characters that maybe don't have the experience who, well, on the development side, get away with saying whatever they want. And it's part of the, it was part of the initial inspiration 2019 for Real Developer is we wanted to shine a light on those that we're able to give genuine numbers to show those appraisals, to show they know what they're doing, the previous products. We all know that landowners sometimes, when they're presented with a, maybe even just a one-page letter, maybe even an email, maybe even a conversation that gives a million pounds more than the previous person, going back to your point, do they care about the taps and everything else? If someone's going to offer a million pounds, they can't show their workings. They can't explain that. They can't take them to other sites, but they've said they can pay another million pounds. Do they care? I will give you... A number of examples of times that people will go, I almost bought that site. I could have bought that site. 
And actually, I think if you are Siobhan and others, that the majority, they, they've turned down more than they've ever developed. And that is one key sort of piece of advice I'd give any aspiring developer, experienced developer, is never do anything that you feel uncomfortable with. It, it's, it's only develop the stuff that you feel you can actually add value to and, and, and stick to your principles on. So if someone comes along and wants to make an offer, we all know it's going to come back to market. And invariably, the best place to be is be the underbidder, which they'll always come back to and say, yeah, I know you did say that they were going to mess me around and, and they kind of have messed me around. So now your position is 10 times stronger mm. because you've now been proved to be right. There's a level of trust that exists. And it always helps to go and talk to a vendor through a warm introduction to someone the vendor's already built a relationship with, a rapport with. Because if you knock on their door cold as a developer, the guard is already up straight away. If it's someone they've already dealt with and it's an, it's an agent or someone they feel might be on their side, they're more likely to believe what you're telling them because it's come from someone that's trusted rather than someone that's potentially just cold approach. That has led me quite nicely actually to my next question because I have over the last three years have done a lot of sites and they have all sold more than I've been prepared to pay for them. And I've really struggled to understand how people have got to their figures. You know, how have they paid that for that site? And all those sites, well, I say all of them, but most of those sites are still sitting there, still sitting undeveloped. So a developer has, and they've all been bought by developers or, and they haven't been developed. So are those sites going to come back onto the market as distressed sales or do they have the time capacity to hold on to these sites. I, my opinion is surely not everyone can hold on to these sites that they've possibly overpaid for. But when I speak to landowners, they all seem to think that one can hold on to them and they won't be as distressed as I kind of hope they would be to be able to then go and buy them at the level I wanted to buy them at initially. Do you think we're going to see a lot of distressed sites come back onto the market? No. Sorry to disappoint you. Um, <laughs> not that's not my, view. Yeah, not my <laughs> view. There's something you can buy that you can't buy and you can't sell and that's integrity. And I think that's something that realistically most developers who have done successful have in bucket loads. They have a lot of integrity. They will shake hands on a deal and they'll stick by that deal. Uh, there are a lot, lot more that don't. And therefore, we see the sort of opportunities you're talking about. However, banks now won't really lend the 90, 10, the 80, 20 that they used to as a loan to value. So there's still a lot of liquidity in that market. So therefore, if you're putting that kind of money into a site, you're leveraging and you're borrowing interest costs are quite considerably lower than they would have been. So you can probably manage that through a relatively short period of time, 12 to 24 months. And so long as you are actively doing something with the site, if it's planning, if it's pre-commencement, if it's, you know, prelims or whatever it is, the developer is going to be quite, the lender's going to be quite keen to continue down that path to realize their return. Don't forget every month that passes, that lender's getting more interest. So they're not exactly in a rush to rip that bandaid off. However, what we do need to be conscious of is that a lot of sites have been bought in a rising market. So a lot of people have been bailed out by, in effect, higher house prices than they anticipated. And therefore, the profit they should have really been squeezed on is now actually still quite healthy. And they think that they are some way a genius developer that's somehow really, really excellent at this and making huge profits and not realizing that the housing market is just going up and they're doing quite well out of that. We're now seeing a more stagnant housing market, which will mean that those who bought on tighter margins will still complete, still develop and still produce this product. And then at the end of the year, they're like, I didn't make a ton of profit here. Not sure this is really really for me, I might want to go and look at something else. Which, if we're all being honest, the industry is quite crowded and could do with a bit of a, a readjustment between the amount of people that are doing it because we see a lot of people that are borrowing the same money from the same lender, whether it be a high net individual, whether that be a, a you know, banks are slightly different because they're there to lend the money, but, but the high nets and the funds, lots of people cannibalizing the same money. So if we get a bit more, less 
kind of people looking at things, trying to, you know, earn a, a 10 percent margin. And then by the time they've built it and sold it, they're losing money. But it's okay, I'm a developer and it looks good. And I've got a Porsche on high, monthly hire and, and all the kind of tri- trimmings of a developer, but without the kind of real product to the end. You know, as Alex alluded to, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful market because it is so diverse, but sometimes it needs a slight readjustment in how it operates. Do you think we'll have a natural cull of kind of, you know, sorting from, I was going to say the boys from the men, but the girls from the, the women yeah. as well? The people from the people. We, the people, we, from, we, the people. We, we from the chaff. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah th- there's definitely, I call it the window glazed salesman because that's in my, in my kind of era, you had a lot of guys knocking on doors trying to say double glazing. Then it was PPI. There was PPE, so you know, and, you know, there's lots of these acronyms, but I think there are there's a there's a, a transient population of workforce that will move to the next thing that makes them a quick turn, and, and for a while, planning gain was definitely one of them. So I suppose my sort of parting question, I suppose, be, would be if you could make one prediction in the next twelve months, and ideally not about rugby because I don't know anything about rugby. <laughs> so um, if you could make one prediction that you don't think everyone else is kind of on the hills on what what would you think what would be your i think this is going to happen i'm not sure everyone else does q end of q2 q3 into q4 i think we'll see one of the highest hottest land markets we've seen in a number of years just purely because the bottleneck of supply and demand hasn't been met since pre-brexit and then we've had covid and then we've had you know mini budgets so subjects have been no major international scandals or political bombshells i think we'll see a very short, sharp, intense land values being achieved. And when, when we've not had some of those things, though, <laughs> well, I was going to so say, but something's yeah. going to happen. You can't help you a little bit excited about that. Oh, I'm super though. excited. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Simon, if you believe that, then we're, yeah, we'll, we'll come support you on, on that one as well. Yeah, we're on board. We'll take that. <laughs> Simon, just a quick one before we uh, round up. Talk us through quickly. Deal of your career so far, or Walter Cooper's career, should I say? Well, it's the deals we're going to do, I guess, rather than deals we've done. But the first one was nice. The first one, six weeks after starting, when we sold 11 units with a pub conversion and some houses that are back, you know, not our biggest deal and not our smallest deal, but it was nice to have be validated and know that standing on your own two feet, you can do it. And what is the best way, besides inviting you to cracking rugby matches, to build a relationship with your fantastic team at Walter Cooper? Be honest, be sincere and Pass the pint test, I guess, is what I call it. So just someone you can have a pint with. Not necessarily an actual pint, but someone in that scenario you can have a good time with. So it was a good start. Very good advice. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to round off there. If you want to go and check out the Let's Talk Land podcast with Simon and Walter Cooper, do check out the Spotify and Apple podcast platforms. Of course, you can follow Simon Cox at Walter Cooper on LinkedIn as well as Siobhan Cook from Archco Developments as well. Thank you very much for joining us. We will see you for the next episode. Hi, everyone. It's your host again, Alex Harrington-Griffin. Just want to say thank you very much for joining us for this episode. And of course, to our amazing guests, make sure to follow Real Developer on LinkedIn for all the latest SME developer news, podcasts, and quarterly land requirements from our accredited developers. And of course, if you're an experienced SME developer and ready to grow your land connections and opportunities, Head to realdeveloper.co.uk to take our three-minute real check test and see how you match up against the existing accredited developers. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your peers and hit that subscribe button. We'll see you next time for more Real Developer Conversation.